Well, it's been a great Sunday. It's been great to focus on our Vacation Bible School and all that God did through each one of us here in our church. God truly received our service to Him as an offering and used it for His purposes. I know as pastor, as we are just standing back there and watching so many of the different things happening, it's exciting to be part of a church that God is using. But why VBS? Why hundreds of hours of preparation? Why the sacrifice? Why so much time? Why wear ourselves out? Why our together teams? Why together Poland? Why together Struthers? Why backpacks and things like that? Why work so hard to serve our community? Why support Irene's Home of Hope? Why give sacrificially of our time, of our talents, of our money? Why missions? Why spend thousands of dollars and sending it to people overseas. Well, there are many good reasons. Today I want to highlight just two. You know, why, why we do all of this and so much more. Well, we've been studying in the book of Nehemiah this summer, and I think we can gain at least two important insights as to why Nehemiah did what he did. So please open your Bibles with me to the book of Nehemiah. And follow along as I'm going to kind of recap the story uh, up to this point, uh, starting there in chapter 1. Remember that uh, Nehemiah's homeland of Judah was conquered and destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. With thousands and thousands taken captive and forcibly relocated to Babylon. Now it's some 140 years later, it's 445 B.C., where we pick up the story of Nehemiah, who's been raised in captivity there in this foreign land, a God-worshipping Jew. Through my, I am sure, some incredible uh, you know, series of God-ordained events, Nehemiah ends up as a servant to the very king of the land, one of the most powerful rulers on earth at that time. He is a cupbearer to the king. The story of the book of Nehemiah starts off that when he gets his news from his brother in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, his brother had traveled back to Jerusalem to check on the well-being of the people and of the city. The situation's grim. The, The wall of Jerusalem is still broken down. The gates lie burned and destroyed. And the people, the small remnant of people, is in trouble and shame. Nehemiah's heart is broken upon hearing the news In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Then chapter 1, 5 through 11 details his amazing prayer. He prays words of adoration and praise to God. Nehemiah's God is awesome and great and powerful. He loves him. He prays words of confession of sin. Nehemiah's God is personal and caring and intimate. He prays for God to restore his people back into the, la- into the land. You see, Nehemiah's God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps his word. He's always faithful and true. And he prays for God to grant him success when he talks to the king. Nehemiah's God is helpful. He's involved. He's directing the very actions of Nehemiah's life. We saw in the sermon a few weeks ago, we can learn an awful lot from Nehemiah's prayer. And we continue there in chapter 2, verse 1. It gives us the date of his conversation with the king. That means he continued to pray for about four months. 
But he wasn't just praying, he was also preparing. When it came time to talk to the king, he knew exactly what to say and how to say it. He knew exactly what permission, what letters, what assistance he needed. He was well prepared for just the right moment to share with all the details, all the information that he needed. As we said last week in the sermon, he was prayed up and prepared up so that once God opened the opportunity, he could step up. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. He stepped up. He stepped up in his faith with the outcome of the conversation with the king totally unknown. He broke all the protocol of dealing with the king, allowing the sadness of his spirit to show so that the king would wonder what was wrong with Nehemiah, would ask him. Nehemiah was literally risking his life. He was risking imprisonment and and risking being banished. Although he was ready and prepared and prayed up, when the king does respond, the last phrase there in chapter 2, verse 2 says, And then I was very much afraid. And yet by faith, Nehemiah stepped up. He skillfully put his request before the king, and the king, instead of causing him harm, agrees to everything he asks. As the last sentence in chapter 2, verse 8 says, And the, Lord gra- and the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. See, the king granted his request, but Nehemiah knew that it was really God who was making it all happen. So now I want to look at these next two verses in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. See, Nehemiah, fresh with the king's approval, prepares for his journey from Susa to Jerusalem. Susa, which is the winter palace for the king, is in modern-day Iran, just across the southern border with Iraq. As the crow flies, it's about 770 miles from Susa to Jerusalem. But the meandering of the desert caravan paths would have made the journey much closer to 1,000 miles. At a typical caravan's pace of about 20 miles per day, it would have taken Nehemiah about 50 days or so to cross the Zagros Mountains, to cross the Tigris and the Euphrates Rivers, and to endure the Syrian desert. So from getting the bad news of the state of Jerusalem and the remnant there from his brother, to arriving in Jerusalem with the king's letters of approval to start to rebuild the wall and the people is somewhere around seven months. So why did he do this? Have you ever thought, why did Nehemiah do any of this? Why did he leave probably one of the best jobs in all the land? Why did he forsake all the security, all the comfort, all the wealth and prestige? Why did he leave the plush palace of the king to live in the ruins 
of Jerusalem. Why did he sacrifice so much time, so much effort and prayer and preparation? Why did he literally risk his future and his life? Why did he travel for two months through some of the hardest and most difficult terrain? Why does he want to be used of God to fix a problem that really isn't his problem? Why? Why? Because he loved God and he loved people. We see that Nehemiah had a dip, deep and rich relationship with God. So when he heard the grim news of the remnant of Jerusalem, his first thought, his first reaction was to pray. His first thought wasn't the condition of the people or of the city, but it was of his God. Nehemiah didn't sacrifice all that time for walls. Nehemiah didn't go through all of those hardships and risk himself for stones and mortar. No, the plight of the people and the city was a disgrace to the name and the reputation of God. It wasn't just the people. It wasn't just the walls that were broken. It was the reputation of the God of those people. It was the reputation of the God of the temple in that great city. The one and only God of the universe. His glory was being diminished because of the situation of the city and the response of the people. The one and only God of the universe. His glory was being diminished because of people were, who were called by His name and the city of His dwelling place lies in ruins teetering on collapse, forgotten. One of the reasons why for Nehemiah was that he loved God. Look again at those first words that come out of his mouth, of his prayer there in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. Nehemiah loved him and kept his commandments. God is the Lord God of heaven. He's the sovereign ruler over everything and everybody. He's not just the God of some nation. He's not just the God of some people or some culture. He is the God over all and above all. He is the God in Susa just as much as he is the God in Jerusalem. He's the great and awesome God. He's the wonderful and strong God. He's the all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God. He is faithful He keeps his word. He's a God of relationship, loyal and true, steadfast, enduring love. And in turn, those who worship him, those who love him, those who follow him and keep his commandments are in relationship with him. The relationship is mutual and reciprocal, real and substantive. Why does Nehemiah make all those sacrifices of time and resources? Because he loves God. Believe that through his time in prayer with God, Nehemiah feels that God has called him. That God has put him on mission to restore the people in the city of Jerusalem. But he's not begrudging his calling. He's not saying, well, if I have to, I guess I'll do what God wants me to do. No, he wants to do it because he loves God and because he loves the people. Look at that last phrase of chapter 2, verse 10. I love that last phrase. Look at that. It says that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That someone was Nehemiah. 
He came to seek the welfare of the people. He came to seek their best well-being. He came to help them, to serve them, to give to them, to restore them, to revive their hearts and their safety, to restore their name and honor. Why did he make all those sacrifices? Because he loved the people. This wasn't some esoteric mission to some people he could care less about. This was his people, his homeland. As he said, the city of the place of my father's grace. Why, Nehemiah? Why so much risk? Why so much sacrifice? Two powerful yet simple motivations. Love God. Love people. So why us? So why all the sacrifice? Why do we labor for hundreds and hundreds of hours over vacation Bible school? Why do we sacrificially give of our time, of our money? Why do we volunteer using our skills and talents? Why do we take the risk of leadership? Why do we organize and practice and prepare and teach? Why do we purposely push ourselves out of our comfort zone, pushing our boundaries? Why, when we're already so busy with family... Why, when we're already so busy with work, why do we give of our time to God, to our church, to our community, when our bodies are weary and our strength is waning? Why do we press on? Why? Two powerful yet simple motivations. We love God. We love people. We love God, the first great thought of our lives. He's the essence of our very existence. All that we have, we owe to him. All that we are, we owe to him. Our hope, our salvation, our strength, our wisdom, our praise, our truth. Why? Because God is great. Because God is awesome. Why? Because Jesus is so precious to us. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our life. Jesus said, what profit a man if he gains the whole world? And yet loses a soul. What profit? Nothing. But flip it around. What profit a man if he loses the whole world and yet gains his soul? Answer? Everything. Everything. You see, a relationship with God through Jesus is everything. It's not a good thing. It's everything. There's no comparison. Gain the whole world and lose your soul. Or who cares about this old world, even to the point of losing it all and gaining your soul, which is better? There's no comparison. Why? Because we love Jesus. Jesus, the one and only Son of God, came to this earth, humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross for our sins. Perfect and innocent, yet died in my place. 1 John 4.10 says, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we could love God. He loved us first so that we could love him in return in relationship. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Stuart Briscoe writes, Years ago, when I was a young banker, we used these big leather ledgers where all the accounts were entered by hand. I remember daydreaming about those ledgers and, and God's ledger in heaven. 
We are told those books will someday be opened. I imagined my name, David Stuart Briscoe, and God adding up the sum total of my indebtedness against him. I could never cancel the overwhelming indebtedness. And in my mind's eye, I saw God take his pen and transfer the sum total of my indebtedness from my account to the account of the Lord Jesus. On the account of the Lord Jesus, he wrote, transferred from the account of David Stuart Briscoe. I thought God was finished. But then I saw him do something incredible. He added up the total righteousness of Christ. And against it, wrote these words, transferred to the account of David Stuart Briscoe. That is love. See, our sin, on his account, forgiven. His righteousness, on our account, accepted and beloved as a child of God. John 1.12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, perhaps today is your day to exchange your sin for Christ's salvation. Perhaps it's your day to exchange your life for Christ's death and resurrection. Perhaps today is your day to exchange the foolishness of what this world thinks is gain for the only gain that is ever really going to matter, your soul. If today is your day, then don't wait. Pray right now, right where you are sitting. Pray to God and offer to God your sins in exchange for Christ's salvation. Give God your life, your all, in exchange for Christ's eternal life and the truest fulfillment that life can offer. Today is your day. Why? Because we love Jesus. And why? Because we love people. Why sacrifice so much? Because we love people. The great and first commandment, love God. The second great commandment, love your neighbor. Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. Why? Because just like our Savior, we love people. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus literally sacrificed it all, endured it all, gave the greatest cost of all for us, for all people. He loves us so much. He loves the world so much. And Jesus told us to go to get out of the church, to get out of our homes, to go into the community with his message, with his love, with his gospel, with the good news of his salvation. It's called the Great Commission. I like to call it 
the great directive. Here's the great directive to the church. Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Mark sixteen fifteen, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why? Because we love people just like Jesus loved people. And as we follow his commands, he commands us, he puts us on mission to sacrifice whatever it takes to proclaim his message of love and forgiveness and repentance and eternal life. So, beloved, let it be heard throughout our church that we love God and we love people. Let it be heard throughout Struthers in Poland, throughout Boardman in Youngstown, that we love God and we love people. May it be heard throughout the land that someone has come to seek the welfare of the people. Poland Village Baptist Church has come. To seek the welfare of the people. Let it be heard in each heart. We love God. And we love you. Each one of you. At the 2013 commencement speech at MIT, Drew Houston, the founder of Dropbox, said, When I think about it, the happiest and most successful people I know don't just love what they do. They're obsessed with solving an important problem, something that matters to them. They remind me of a dog chasing a tennis ball. Get the picture in your mind, a dog chasing a tennis ball. Their eyes go a little crazy. The leash snaps as they go bounding off, plowing through whatever gets in the way. So it's not about pushing yourself. It's about finding your tennis ball, the thing that pulls you. So, beloved, what's your tennis ball? What is pulling you, urging you to serve? What is pulling you to sacrifice? What is pulling you to give? Simple. Love God. Love people. These two simple motivations that change everything. So take some time. Evaluate. What are my great motivations? What is my tennis ball? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for Nehemiah. It just lays it right out for us. He loved you. He loved people. Lord, we pray that Poland Village Baptist Church, that me as pastor, as follower, that the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, all the leaders, and every member, every attender, every person. Lord, if there is one thing that our community says about us, may they look at us and say that they have come to seek the welfare of us. May they say of us, they love God. And they love us. Why do 
all that we are doing simply for you to use it and to do with it amongst our community as you see fit. We offer our lives, our church, as a living sacrifice into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.